Welcome to A Window on Samri, where we take you inside South Australia's independent not-for-profit health and medical research institute. Each episode, we get to know the people driving our life-changing research, getting into what motivates them personally and how their work is delivering a brighter, healthier future for all. Elise, your dad had blood cancer when you were growing up. What was it like being around that when he was going through chemo? When I was younger, I didn't really know exactly what was going on. I just knew that he was sick. All I knew is that I wanted to grow up and do something about it pretty much. So more recently in 2020 was when he relapsed with blood cancer and it transformed to a much more aggressive disease. And as someone working in blood cancer research, that's when it more affected me just to see him going through the, the treatment. So what did you see when you were a kid in terms of his symptoms or how did you experience what he was going through? I think when I was younger, my mum kind of took me away from it a little bit. I just noticed that he was, you know, tired and wasn't, yeah, very himself, I guess. Mm. So I didn't see a lot of the symptoms then. It was definitely the effect of the treatment this time around as an adult. So to see the the toxicity of the, the chemotherapy. But yeah. he went into remission after yes. not that long of a period when both times when as when you're a child and also as an adult? Yeah. Um so the when I was younger he went into remission. I think there are a few times there are a couple scares of it coming back. But then more recently I think it was a solid about nine months of really high intensive treatment before he went back into remission. So even though you were, or your mum tried to create some separation, how do you think that that impacted you when you were a child? I think it definitely, not changed the way I I thought about things, but made me really think more about what, what can happen to people and I guess the diseases that people can go through. And kind of, I hadn't really experienced that before. That was the first experience of seeing the the impact of a disease like cancer and really exposed me to that. And how much did that factor into you becoming the researcher that you are today? I'd say close to 100%. Um, yeah, definitely. I was yeah very interested in science. Like, I mean, I was quite young then. I was very creative and very science driven, but yeah, in terms of the, the field that I've ended up in, in blood cancer, um, it's definitely, yeah, because of what my dad went through. So was it a case of being that young and seeing what was happening and saying to yourself, I'm going to try and fix this? Yeah, I think so. Yes. In terms of what I'm working on now though, which is children's cancer, I think it's to do with how, how hard I've seen it from a, from a child's perspective, having a parent go through it. I can only imagine what a parent would go through having a child um, go through cancer and the treatment. So that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to fix now. And what led you to Samri? It started in undergraduate degree. So I was doing just a normal science degree and we have guest lecturers. So Professor Deb White, who's now my boss, uh, came to give a lecture in biochemistry and I absolutely loved it. So I went and chatted to her afterwards and tried to get an opportunity to come to Samri. Um, and that's where it all started, my journey with Samri. And how long have you been at the Institute for now? Um, since 2017, I started. Right. So yep. quite a long journey already. 
Yes, yeah, a lot of a lot of study. So did placement project. Um, I started what's called an, a master of philosophy, which I upgraded to a PhD, uh, and then started working as a postdoc on the same team as well. And what's kept yeah. you at Samri? Perfect place to be in research. Really, it's a world leading health and medical research institute. We've got a great team. There's so much collaboration going on in the building. So. There's a lot of diversity in the types of research and what we can achieve. There's always someone with expertise in a particular technique um, that you can relate to to your own research. So, I mean, in my opinion, why would you want to go anywhere else? Obviously, there's a massive stigma for researchers to finish their PhD and go overseas and to another lab, which is an absolutely wonderful experience. For me, that wasn't possible. That was right when my dad relapsed as well, when I was trying to find a job. So it was important for me to stay here in Adelaide, but Samri has everything that I could possibly want. Um, and where there are things lacking, that's when we collaborate with interstate research groups or international research groups. Were you ever planning to go overseas before your dad relapsed? I was probably planning to go interstate rather than overseas because that was also at the same time as COVID in 2020. Interstate was definitely on on the, the plans for me, not so much international. How did your family cope with that with, well, the whole world was struggling with COVID when it first happened in 2020, but then also having that happen to your dad, what was that time in your life like? It was a pretty scary time actually, because they wouldn't let people in the hospitals. So the type of chemotherapy that he was on was admitted to hospital for two weeks straight on a drip of chemo. Um, and you couldn't be there with him. You can have one visitor at a time kind of thing. So it was a bit of a scary time with everything going on. What about your discussions with him, given your work and your intimate knowledge of blood cancer and his experience of it? How has that factored into your relationship? Is that something that you talk about? He must have a great interest in your work. Yeah, he's absolutely very supportive of my work. I think in terms of the discussions that we had, it was probably more more difficult for me because I normally, it's not as personal, I suppose, whereas I can, I can talk scientifically about my research and what he was going through. But in terms of me being a family member and showing support, that's kind of what was more important at that time rather than talking science. How do you feel like it affects your research though, having had such a close brush with this cancer and then spending your career researching it, that's very different to someone who hasn't actually had that personal experience in some ways. How do you feel like that influences your work? I think it's so important to to have seen that, as, to see exactly what why you're researching what you're researching. I've been quite involved with the, uh, we've got a consumer group. So this involves ALL survivors, adult survivors, and also families who have had children pass away from leukemia. And it's just really important to know their perspectives and what, what their stories, basically, to know what's really important for them, what kind of research that they want driven so that we can actually act that out in the lab. Does that mean that you're seeing some of these children from time to time? Yeah, more so the, the families and the adult survivors, the children don't often come along to the the consumer group meetings, but absolutely we have a, a close relationship with our consumers. That must be quite a delicate balance dealing with those people on a personal level whilst also doing your research, which is totally separate. 
Have you formed some special relationships with people who are in those consumer groups? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But I think it's it's so great to to hear their stories and what they went through. I think it just really reminds you of why you're doing the research in the first place and the change that you are making. Because it must be, well, it could be that you could forget if you didn't have that kind of close connection to families who are actually experiencing it and you're just spending all your time in the lab looking at cells and doing the, the groundwork, you could create that distance and see it as separate to the actual reality of people living with this. Yeah, you're definitely right. And I think it's good to have both perspectives. I mean, sometimes when we are doing the science, you need to... I guess sometimes take emotion out of it, particularly when you're working on, you know, preclinical models with animals and things like that. But in terms of the the results driven factor, you need to remember the people who who are affected and and why you're doing what you're doing. And personalized therapy is a big goal for future treatment in cancer. This is a bit of a broad question, but how <laughs> Do we do that? How do we do that? There are, I think, a few steps involved. This is probably one of my biggest passions to create personalized therapies. First, you need to understand the disease itself at the the cellular biological level. So what we do in the lab when we get patient leukemia samples, we try to interrogate that cell. We try to understand everything we can about it to know exactly what is going to drive that patient's leukemia. So once we can figure that out, then we know the exact target, the exact key switch that we need to target with a t- like a personalized therapy. So then there's the other side of it, if finding if there's already something available that can target that or if we need to do more drug design developmental types of things there to, so that we can accurately target each individual patient's leukemic cells. What's an example of something that's happened in your career that you're proud of in terms of that process and translating, I suppose, to a real life setting? I'm kind of working almost a bit backwards in terms of working on the translational edge and then also understanding the disease biology. In probably during my PhD was the the biggest uh, finding of, so what I was investigating was a genetic predisposition to leukemia. So this was in children with Down syndrome. And so children with Down syndrome have an extra copy of chromosome 21. So I was investigating all the genes on chromosome 21 and trying to find if there were any that did have that link to leukemia. And then basically I I stumbled across one, one that did. So finding the gene that played a role in the leukemia development and progression and then also trying to find a drug that targeted. And what I identified was actually a combination, so two drugs, that work together to to switch this off, and that's probably the the biggest finding in terms of personalized therapy that I've found. And what was the result of that using those drugs? So the result of using it was quite incredible because we we could decrease the the dose of chemotherapy. So in leukemia, it's unlikely that we'll be able to completely stop giving chemotherapy because it's an acute disease, so it's very aggressive. But my goal is to essentially find these targeted therapies to completely decrease the dose so that those side effects that we see are, are totally abrogated. So using the introducing these two new drugs, we can decrease the chemotherapy so that there's way less side effects. Yeah, reducing that toxicity is a major part of your work and 
when it comes to cancer treatment research more broadly, it's, yeah, like you said, we're probably not going to reach a point where no one has cancer and we don't have to do any treatment on the actual cancers anymore. But how can we reduce those side effects so that people can have an increased quality of life? Because well, it has been the case that blasting people with chemo means that they have such poor quality of life because they're suffering so much of the time. So how can we work around that to try to correct that while they're going through treatment? Yeah, exactly. It's learning to, to manage the disease rather than having it be such big of a burden. So we want to still allow patients to have a life through their treatment uh, and beyond that in remission, have a better chance at remission and, and not be scared that that disease is going to come back and that they'll relapse. And speaking of predisposition, how do our genes impact whether or not we get cancer? A lot of the time it is completely random. So the cells, as they divide, they can make mistakes and then the right combination of mutations, it's more, it's more like a perfect storm that can develop into leukemia. It's more whether those mutations are present that can predispose or sometimes genetic conditions like such as Down syndrome where there's a difference in dosage of genes, so a whole extra chromosome, for example. Do you look at prevention at all? Is there anything that we know of that can be done to actually prevent those random events? I think prevention is really interesting. A lot of diseases you see screening, but I think it's a big ethical consideration as to whether people would actually want to know if they're going to have that gene or not. I don't know that there's heaps that we can do to prevent it from from mutate from genes mutating and you're not going to give preventative chemotherapy. So it's kind of it it would be hard to prevent, but more to understand what what happened and look during the course of events that led to the leukemia so that we can treat it better. Why in your view should people be aware of whether they might be predisposed to certain cancers? I think that's probably a really personal thing that each individual may or may not want to want to find out. There are only certain types of cancers that do have those predisposing mutations like breast cancer and things like that. Whereas in leukemia, there are far less. It's more what arises in a cell at, at that given moment. How's the research that you're doing now changing lives, do you think? Um, so we work in a really translational laboratory. So we are the National Referral Centre for uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia patients worldwide. So we're right on the cutting edge of identifying in each patient sample what's driving their disease and um, essentially curating all of that data to refer to the clinicians what drugs are going to best treat and if we do have any personalised therapies that would be a good option for that patient. So it's really good to have that um, a really diverse group working with closely with clinicians that can have a big input in the research and also have the best outcomes for patients. And I guess the ease of setting up clinical trials as well, it's a big help. And you were a student for a long time at Samory and now you have students under you as well. Yes. How do you find being a leader within this space as well as doing your own work? I, I really love having students. I enjoy teaching a lot. It's been really good to quite quickly, as an early career researcher, have those those PhD students and be involved in their projects. And it's yeah really great to see them learn to, to figure things out, um, think outside of the box to solve problems as well. Do you see lots of similarities for what you went through at a younger age? Uh, I think so, yes. But I think I know where I went wrong and I'm trying to help them onto the, 
the, make it an easier process for them. Mm, they yeah. must appreciate that. Hopefully. What's it like being part of something that's as important to humanity as cancer research? I don't think I've really thought about it like that. Um, you just rock up I and just, do it? <laughs> yeah, I go to work every day, yeah. do my job. But it's it's exciting. I, I love what I do. I'm passionate about it and I, I'm, I'm here to create change. I want to make the, the, the change in these cancer treatments so that people can have better outcomes. So how do you describe what your goal is, what your vision is? My vision, the, the overall outcome is that I want to every patient to have an opportunity at personalised therapy. At the moment, we do have quite significant exclusion criteria for very valid reasons, of course, like toxicity. But I think everyone should have a chance at being able to find a targeted drug that will affect their particular leukemic cell or cancer cells in general that is going to save their, their normal cells. So I guess the way that we get there, I think the way that we look at that problem is also another one of my goals. So when we're in the lab designing those experiments using really elegant techniques and methodology is also uh, one of my goals as well. So the technology that we use to identify these new therapies. And like you said, they're setting up those experiments and then having to be able to adapt and have things not work out the first time and then figure out why that sort of plays into the kind of person that you are anyway. Absolutely. Yes. I love solving a problem when it's lovely when the experiments do go right, but when they don't, um, I just think it's more exciting. Um, there's more to solve. It's more to it more. Yeah. I don't know. I don't stumble under pressure, I guess. It just, it creates more things for me to investigate. So would you say there's anything you don't like about science? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you've got to give your whole life to it. I mean, I love what I do. So it is, I mean, I'm happy to do it. Nothing, there's nothing I particularly don't like about it. I think uh, funding, can, funding, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get funding is what I don't like about it. It takes away from the research. That's right. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to hard to do, whereas you just want to be in there researching your problem and, yeah, getting those results, but you have to sit there writing applications after applications, trying to trying to beg for money and That's someone right. to, to fund what you're doing. The bane of every researcher's existence. <laughs> exactly. How's your dad doing now? Really, really well. Yep. He's very fit. He's a, he's a very fit person. Before 2020, he was running marathons and now he's back to, yep, everyday fitness. So it's good. Must give you a lot of faith in what health and medical research and treatment can do. Absolutely. It, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and I know you said that science is your whole life, but that's not true. You do do some other stuff outside of science, <laughs> yeah, of right? Of course, of course. What sort of hobbies do you spend your time on? I also like my fitness, so I've got to do that every day. To That's a good mental outlet. Um, I'm very creative, so I love to bake. I think that runs with the theme of our whole lab. We have a lot of scientists who are creative, so we get a lot of baked goods coming into are the lab. Are we talking about like elaborate cakes and that sort of Absolutely, thing? Absolutely, oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Love, That's right. love a good cake. Nice. Um, all kinds of desserts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So the colleagues are benefiting from that? Yes, particularly um, when I'm stressed, I stress bake. Oh, you so, stress bake? So I always bring in food when I'm- Oh, when wow. I'm, and then people say, are you okay? Like, exactly. mouthfuls of food. <laughs> yeah. And they're trying to stress you out. They like it when you're stressed. <laughs> That's right, because the cake, you know, decreases the stress. It's a, it's a good balance. <laughs> 
<laughs> so fitness and baking, what else? Yeah, what else do I do? I like to read. Um, I like to grow plants. So I'm propagating all my plants at home and turning my house into a jungle, which is fun. Oh, cool. Yes. I'm trying to learn Mandarin at the moment, wow. uh, which is Are you bilingual fun. already? No, I'm not. Why did you choose Mandarin? My husband's bilingual. He has a Chinese-Cambodian background and he speaks Khmer, not Mandarin. But I thought that, that Mandarin might be a more useful language. I hear uh, it's a pretty difficult language to learn. I don't think I've tried to learn any other language before this, so I'm just going to assume that they're all this hard. But it's good fun. So. Are you trying to do it on your own or are you going to classes? Uh, Duolingo. Oh, classic. <laughs> yeah, there's um, definitely an element of uh, collecting gems helps uh, on the, the language learning journey, keeps you at it. You've got to con- keep your streak up every day, um, otherwise you lose gems. Oh, so, mm, an so it's a, it's a reward, reward-based game. Right. Yes. Yep. Okay, cool. And why is it so important to you to have these other things outside of work? I think it's just good mental release. Um, you can't constantly think about science, although you kind of do anyway. But I love I love learning, so that's why I guess I'm learning language, trying to learn music. But I spend all day learning about science, so I've got to just have these other inputs. To be able to switch off. <laughs> yeah, that's it. What do you want to be able to say when you look back on your career? I think that I've just I've made an impact for children with leukemia. I want to say that I have changed the way that they undergo their therapy and made that more manageable. I don't know that we'll ever cure the disease, but I think in terms of of managing the disease, I want to make that a better process and make kids' lives normal um, when they are going through treatment and make that an option. Well, I don't think you'd find a much more important goal than that, so I'm glad we've got you working on it. (laughs) Thank you. And thanks for sharing your story. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Samri and the researchers working to build a brighter, healthier future for you and your family, head to samri.org.au. 